everyone, and welcome to this week's C3 Centricity podcast. It's called How to Take Local Brands Global, The Five Rules to Fortune. I remember reading an article in the Financial Times a few years ago that challenged companies to search for a new style of marketer. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that they were speaking about the current need for marketers to be both creative and tech-savvy, but they weren't. They were referring to the growing demand for marketers who could take successful local brands to global fortune. After all, thanks to the internet, we all live in a global market these days, and the recent pandemic has highlighted this more than ever before with online shopping booming. The marketer who understands when local specificities make sense and when they don't is the one who will succeed in today's global economy. In this networked world, more and more successful local brands are attempting global rollouts. So what does it take to repeat the success you've had at market level when you launch globally? Here are my five rules to fortune. Number one, understand the market and how it's changing. This is the basis of any new product launch and applies just as well to global rollouts as it does to local brand developments. Today's consumers are demanding, so find out as much as possible about them. Understand their rational needs, but also their emotional desires, even if they don't openly articulate them. For global rollouts, additional information concerning the comparison of similarities and differences between the customers in the local and future markets must also be considered. This is where trend following is of particular use, even if you haven't yet developed plausible future scenarios, as I recommend. Let's look at some of the latest trends which are growing across regions today. I want it now. Consumers and shoppers want information, and their purchases too, where and when they need them. This has been the case for years, but now they expect to get near instantaneous answers to all their questions, sometimes using visual search to identify and buy whatever they see, wherever they see it. IKEA's Place app offers shoppers the possibility to snap an article they like and then see it in their home environment. IKEA also offers a visual search function for shoppers to identify an item seen in a magazine or in real life and then find similar ones. Dulux's Paint Colour Visualizer offers shoppers a similar service. You can try out paint colours virtually in your home to see how it would look with your furnishings before you purchase it. Personalised experiences. Despite the desire for data privacy control, consumers are ready to provide their information in exchange for a better, highly personalised experience. 
Zozo suit is one example from Japan, which enables consumers to order clothing online that will fit them perfectly. Join the club. Another use of personalised data is in providing privileged services at a price. This idea is used for the regular delivery of razor blades and tampons as well as for personalised exercise routines and menus. Consumers are happy to join a club to pass on mundane tasks to a virtual assistant to make their lives simpler. Some successful examples of this include Dollar Shave Club and Frida. Now, Amazon was arguably one of the first to trial this concept with its Amazon Dash buttons. But they stopped offering these in early 2019, replaced by much more user-friendly smart home devices, although they will continue to honour orders placed in this way, at least for now. You can read Amazon stops selling Dash buttons Goofy Forerunners of the Connected Home for further details and the link is in my blog post. It's essential to understand why your local consumers purchased your product or service and then compare the sensitivity to those in your new target market. For example, if individualization and personalization are important in your local market, are they important in the new market? If they aren't, then you may risk a hard task to gain acceptance and interest in your new offer if it depends on these. If you're new to trend following on a global basis, then a great place to start is with the annual Euromonitor International's Consumer Trends Reports. Their early 2020 report highlights trends revolving around two key themes, convenience and personal control. As they mention in this report, consumers must strike a balance between these two, and that's not always easy. And again, you can find the link on my blog post. Number two, understand the customer's perception. What does the brand stand for in the eyes and minds of your customers? Will the consumers in the new target market perceive the same benefits in the same way as your current customers? If not, is this really a potential market or are you just rolling out there due to geographical proximity? I am still amazed how many organisations base their rollout strategies on geography rather than the customer. Big and usually very costly errors are involved if they do. Even large multinationals get it wrong, as the following examples show. P&G's Pampers was launched in Japan with the image of a stork, which confused their consumers. Whereas a stork is fabled to bring babies to parents in the West, this is not the case in Japan, so the Japanese consumer didn't understand the image at all. Mitsubishi's Pajero, Mazda's Laputa and Chevrolet's Nova 
all had issues when rolling out their cars into Spanish-speaking countries. Had they bothered to check the meaning of the model names in the local language, they would have avoided the negative connotations and the need to change the names of their vehicles after they'd been launched. Ford Pinto had a similar issue with Portuguese in Brazil. The launch of the model was met with hilarity and mocking. Pinto is often used as slang for a man with tiny genitalia. Ford quickly changed the name from Pinto to Corsel, which translates to stallion, a clear attempt to overcompensate in my opinion. As already mentioned, we're living in a global community today, so even if you don't plan for now to launch in other markets, your image can still be impacted across the globe by a badly chosen name, as these examples show. The second issue concerning customer perceptions is the importance of particular traits in certain markets. For example, the actual price may be more important than quality in some markets. It may therefore make sense to offer a product in smaller sizes, such as individual sachets for shampoos, or low-count contents for dry products like stock cubes or confectionery. In some markets, value can be perceived as a consequence of packaging or after-sales service, while in others, not at all. It is therefore vital to understand the components of value in your current as well as the future markets. The third area you will want to pay attention to is the image of both the brand and your corporation if it's included in the packaging. Table stakes of categories can vary by country and what is important in one market can have no influence on purchase in another. In addition, the corporate image is at least partly based upon your company's current category presence. If you have a reputation for cheap products, then you may struggle in launching a premium product. Understanding a brand's image from both perspectives is therefore important to successfully rolling it out in other markets. So you see just how much information you need to gather about your brand's image and even your organization's image too before thinking about launching in new markets. Not doing your homework could cost the business a lot in terms of both the damaged image, as the above examples show, or worse still, a costly failed launch. Number three, position based on insight and human truths. Every brand should have a positioning based upon an insight, and that insight should include a human truth. I write a lot of articles on insight development. Just search on the blog homepage for a review of them all if you're interested in learning more. One of the most comprehensive posts that I've written is called How the Best Marketers Are Getting More Actionable Insights. And as usual, you can find the link on the homepage of the website. 
I would highly recommend reading this post if you're not totally at ease with what an insight is and how to develop an actionable one. Now, back to human truths. One of the similarities that brings all consumers together are their basic human needs. Think parenting and wanting the best for your children, used by many, many brands including Nestle's Nido and Unilever's Omo or Persil. Or what about women and their frustration with not being considered as beautiful as the retouched models they see in their magazines, which is very successfully used by Unilever's Dove? And how about men and their need to charm women to affirm their appeal and attractiveness that is used by Lynx or Axe from, you've guessed it, Unilever again? Insights and human truths are used the world over in marketing and form the basis of many very successful rollout communication strategies. Before you dream of taking your local brand success to global stardom, think about what human truth you are using to build it on. If you can't identify it, there is a far lesser chance of your repeating its local success in other markets. Number four, can you use your local heritage? Many countries and regions have strong stereotyped images that can play to inherent qualities associated with certain product categories coming from them. Examples include French perfumes, Swiss watches, Russian vodka, Italian fashion, German or American cars and Japanese technology. If your brand has a strong positive association with local traditional nationality, then make use of it. Even if consumers in the new market may be less aware, authenticity and tradition will still be strong sensitivities on which you can build your brand in the new markets. And just make sure that you check trend levels of them before choosing the new countries into which you want to launch. IKEA is one brand that has grown thanks to its Swedish heritage of clean, modern and uncluttered lifestyles that appeals to many around the world. It offers cheaper, flat-packed furniture and home accessories, particularly popular with starter homemakers. They built their business on the global need of people for a secure and welcoming home. By making their products in kit form, they could keep prices low and transport and storage were far less challenging than for traditional furniture. This also had the additional benefit of involving the customer in the construction of the furniture, which made the article even more appreciated than shop-bought articles, even if they were of higher quality. Although IKEA is the best-known Scandinavian furniture store and a popular franchise that operates in over 25 countries, it's not the only one. Jusk from Denmark was opened over 30 years after IKEA and today operates in 27 countries, I think it is. It has not been as successful as IKEA and I believe there are several obvious reasons for this, starting with its name, which many still struggle to pronounce, like myself. 
Then there are the products, which are bought, not made by Yusk, as IKEA does. So the quality tends to be lower and far more variable. Denmark's image is not as strong as Sweden's either, although it is riding on the Scandinavian wave started by IKEA. And lastly, there is the IKEA family. Yusk hasn't tried to build a relationship with its customers either, so there are no memberships or clubs, no cafes or restaurants to keep their customers coming back. It is just a store like any other. Whereas IKEA is an experience, even if we do all hate the forced-in-store path. In order to successfully roll out products and services across regions, it is important to know what local image you are portraying and whether it will have the same appeal in new markets or whether it will need to be adapted. Number five, understand the category. Many companies get their rollout strategy wrong because they look at geographical or linguistic proximities rather than the closeness of the customer's social sensitivities in them. Just because countries are geographically close doesn't mean their populations are similar when it comes to category image and usage. One clear example of this is Kellogg's Cornflakes launch into India. It failed because they ignored the Indian habit of having a boiled and sweetened milk rather than using cold milk for their cereals. Therefore, the flakes went soggy and the consumers didn't appreciate what had been promised to be a crunchy breakfast cereal. When planning product rollouts, we also need to consider how alike the customers are in terms of behaviour as well as the category trends compared to the home market. This will help avoid disasters such as Kellogg's cornflakes in India. This could so easily have been avoided if marketers had taken the time to just observe the Indian breakfast tradition, but they didn't. They were a large brand and thought the consumer observation wasn't needed and they paid heavily for their mistake. In contrast, the Austrian brand Red Bull got its global campaign right by not really having one other than aiming, at first at least, for extreme sports and today moving more into elite sports. It adapts its advertising and promotions to fit each local market while still having the foundation of sports, adventure and risk-taking clearly integrated. In the beginning, most of their activities were focused around extreme sports, sponsoring flying, cliff diving, skiing and skateboarding. Since those early days, Red Bull has expanded into activities well beyond sponsorship alone and started its own activities such as soapbox races and the record-breaking Red Bull Stratos programme in which they funded the exploits of Austrian skydiver Felix Baumgartner. It also has teams active in both Formula One racing and champion football with two teams in the first and three clubs in the latter. One final consideration. 
I'd like to end with a final comment on global rollouts. C3Centricity's partner, Phase 1, wrote a guest post for us on the risks of implementing a global creative strategy. As communication experts, Phase 1 knows what it takes to succeed in engaging customers across the globe. The article makes a great compliment to this post and you can read it on why implementing global creative is risky. And once again, the link is in my blog post. Many companies have effectively rolled out local brand successes to other countries in the region, if not the world. But many more have failed. What would you add to the list to increase the odds in favour of a regional or global rollout? I'd love to hear your thoughts and please add a comment in my blog post. So that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. This is Denise Drummond Dunn signing off and speak to you soon.